So as I was preparing for this message, and even as this book as a whole, as you kind of do all this introductory kind of study about the book, and I came to the realization, just looking in my own files, which I have, you know, because we live in this computer age, I have literally every sermon I've ever preached in a file. And I have never preached a sermon from the book of Romans in 20 plus years of ministry. I've taught through the book many times, and I've taught, taught many lessons on the book. Even this past Wednesday, we were looking at parts of Romans in our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so there's lots of times where I've, where I've used it, but I've never once like stood in a pulpit on a Sunday morning and preached a sermon from Romans. And I started to think, why, what am I, why, what am I avoiding? You know, does it seem like I'm avoiding this book? It's not on purpose. I don't think I've consciously avoided this book, but as I've read these opening words, these first seven verses that we're looking at today for the thousandth time, it's helped me to understand this massive undertaking that we are coming to. A famous Welsh minister, Martin Lloyd-Jones, spent 12 years preaching through this book on Friday nights with his congregation. And it's not necessarily the length of the book that is daunting. It's only 16 chapters. It is considered by many to be the best and most thorough explanation of the whole gospel in the Bible. Just this understanding of this very clear and concise message of the gospel. Again, this isn't to say that this isn't to say that you don't see this in other books. Absolutely, you do see the gospel contained in other books 100%. But that is to say that Romans brings the entire Bible to bear on this New Testament truth that Jesus the Messiah came and he lived a life of obedience and gave his life for his people and is now risen again. And this message is a message of hope to anyone who would believe it. So as we move into this study, I do so with a bit of trepidation. I feel I can feel the weight of this book on me a little bit because we have no greater task than to handle the Word of God, both as a pastor and as listeners to God's Word. And if the King of Kings hands you a message to deliver to the nations, which is exactly what's happened here for the Apostle and even now for us as we come to this book, what do you do with it? For Paul, the task was clear as we see his life and ministry. For us, it is the same to hear these gospel words for ourselves and then proclaim them to the world. These first few verses help to set the tone of the book, showing us the King of Kings in full splendor and showing us our task in proclaiming his gospel. So as we consider it, we'll look at three main ideas. First, the one true king. Second, his loyal messengers. And then finally, his royal decree. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name 
among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God to be called saints, or in called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So, again, every time we start a new book, it's important for us to lay down some historical context concerning the audience, the general setting of the book, and we'll be doing that as we go throughout because I think it's important to see that on the whole text. There's a little among uh, critical scholars that Paul, or there's little debate among critical scholars that Paul is the author of this book. And what I mean when I say critical scholars, these are people who like come at the Bible as if the Bible's going to be wrong, and so they're they're coming at it with this kind of criticism. And even they believe that Paul is the author of this book. Obviously, Christian scholars, of course, have no doubts that Paul wrote the book because the book tells us that Paul wrote the book, and so we believe what the Bible says inherently. Uh, it's likely written uh, 55 to 58 A.D., give or take, in the city of Corinth as he was stopping there probably towards the back end of his third missionary journey, he stopped to write this letter to the Roman church. And he was writing to a Roman church whose origin is largely unknown, meaning that no one knows who planted the church in Rome. It just kind of sprung up. Obviously, the Lord knows that and and those people that he used to do that. But the church was a mix of Jews and Gentiles. Just reading the content of this letter, we kind of get that idea But it's interesting because Jews weren't living in Rome at the time that Paul sent this letter to Rome. They were exiled from Rome in 49 A.D. by the Emperor Claudius for various reasons, depending on who you read. And as you read this book, though, it's obvious that Paul planned a wider reading, meaning that he intended Jews to read this book. He intended the Gentiles to read this book. Specifically, he was hoping that they would read it together as they should have, in order to bring them under the common umbrella of Jesus Christ as a common Lord for his one church. Paul's specific purpose in writing the letter is unknown in that he didn't have like a specific purpose that you see in some of his other letters. He may have had one other than to give the church a systematic approach to understanding the message of the gospel. Because before the early church... This was their systematic textbook, their systematic theology textbook. We do well to adopt it as our primary textbook as well. We've gone through several New Testament letters in the last few years as we've gone through like Galatians, Ephesians. We just finished Philippians. And this one will add to the idea that God is entirely consistent in his message to us. We're not going to see any differences as we come to this book, obviously, while we may not know or understand all the details and of the happenings in history or even in the text itself, we can know the content of his overall message to us, that the people of God needed a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. This isn't just a New Testament idea. But Paul, as a scholar of the Old Testament, shows us as Jesus is an Old Testament idea or an Old Testament figure that is brought to fuller light in the New Testament. So the New Testament in this way kind of serves as a commentary of the Old Testament. And we're going to see that as we go through this book. There's so much of the Old Testament that's quoted and dealt with as we move through this book. And that brings us to the first point 
the one true king. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So I'll get to this idea of Paul, the apostle, in the next point, but I want to talk first about the qualification that Paul gives to this phrase, the gospel of God, right there at the verse, end of verse that he's set apart for the gospel of God. What does he say about it? He tells us that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. These scriptures, of course, that he's talking about are, is the Old Testament, right? Paul is a, a scholar of the Old Testament. It's not a new idea that someone would look to the Old Testament in order to find information about Jesus at all. It's not, we're not saying that. Paul is only doing what others have done before him, namely Jesus himself, right? Jesus did this. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus was risen from the dead, we we have this account of him as he's walking on the road to this little village called Emmaus, and he finds these two other people walking as well, and they were all and they were sad. Right? Jesus' body was missing after he was killed, and these two believers were sad, and Jesus sees them on the road, and they don't know who Jesus is. He somehow hid himself from them. So Jesus reminds them of what the prophets said concerning Jesus and says, and, and the Bible tells us in Luke 24, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Can you imagine being there and like hearing Jesus exposit the Old Testament for these two individuals concerning himself? as a way to show them the hope that can be found there from it. But it's no different here really for us today. Jesus' words to those two people are no different than His words to us today written down for all saints for all time. As we move through this book, we'll see very clearly how the Lord through the Apostle opens up the Scriptures in order to show us Himself. And that's exactly what we need. We need more Jesus in order to deal with all that the world throws at us. And it's not just the things that the world throws at us. We need Jesus in order to deal with the sin in our own hearts. We need Jesus and we see Him very clearly. Now what is this Gospel concerning? It's concerning Jesus, of course, but notice how He introduces us to Him here. He's introduced in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul calls himself a servant of Christ. Christ, the word Christ means the Messiah. The title is just basically a translation from that Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah isn't a mere man or some kind of new king or new prophet to come back and bring back the good old days of Old Testament worship. He is the very Son of God. And in verse 3 and 4, you get more of that. Verse 3 and following. Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a whole lot here. We could spend several weeks there. Uh, The Son was descended from David in the flesh, as we as it says there. 
And as we just finished Second Samuel, actually this morning, moving into First Kings next week, we know why this is important. There was always to be a king on the throne of David, right? In Second Samuel seven, we have that promise from the Lord Himself that the king, the kingdom would never depart from the sons of David, that there would always be a, a king on that throne. And this king has come. And this king reigns forevermore. But there's been kings in David's line before. And a lot of times people will say, well, what about all these other kings, right? There's been kings in David's line. In fact, every one of them after David, with a few exceptions, with a few exceptions, were worse than the previous one. It was almost like you were going down the steps into the basement, right? And they just keep kept getting worse. And they're just, they're no good. David wasn't all that great himself. But it just kind of gets worse and worse, these kings that are on the throne of David. It's pretty rough. You don't read, when you read through these books like first and second kings, you don't, you don't gain optimism as you get toward the end of them. You don't feel like things are getting better. It's actually quite the opposite. In fact, when you finish second kings, Judah doesn't even have control over its own king. The king, the king of Judah, quote unquote, is really just underneath Babylon. It's just, just kind of a vassal. And the other ten tribes of Israel, they're just gone. They're called the missing tribes, completely obliterated. And so this idea that a king would always be on the throne of David, as we read through the history of Israel, it's kind of weird. And so here's Jesus. He isn't of some dynasty that has been kept secret and safe over many generations, this coming king that would finally wait for the right time to expose himself to be named king and overcome some great darkness that is off in the distance. This isn't a fantasy book. But if he were just another human king, there would be nothing for us to be excited about. Right? Just like the first century Christians, we've had our fill of earthly kings and their promises. Look at verse 4 again. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. These aren't words that could be said about David or Solomon or Rehoboam or any other earthly king that came after that line Jesus was indeed David's son by human birth. Absolutely. We have that in Matthew. We have that in Luke. Those lineages to show us. But unlike any of those others, he was also David's Lord. And all of David's sons are in a grave somewhere except one. David's Lord, Jesus Christ. Only Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit by His resurrection Not only did he give his life, but he was able to take it back up again. No other king can do that because no human king can do that. Only a king who was both God and man could do that. And this is our Lord Jesus. As we move through the book of Romans, there are going to be times when we're tempted to put our eyes on other things. I promise. As we move through these 16 chapters, it's going to be very tantalizing for us to want to go off on these little side tangents on things. There's so much in Romans to feast on when it comes to that sort of thing. So many theological puzzles, so many hard messages for us, 
Paul was an absolute genius when he wrote this stuff, and we can't even begin to understand his depth of understanding and theological prowess. And so as we come to this, we're going to just, oh, we're just going to want to enmesh ourselves in this kind of thing. There are whole chapters that are controversial, even whole sections of the book that kind of just come out to us. We're like, oh, I want to understand all of this. And there are times when we'll come up against things that we don't understand. Or there may even be times when we come to passages that we've heard taught dozens of times and we may just want to kind of, just kind of wait until, oh, well, I already know all this. I already know all this. I want to get to something that's, that's actually good. And if we take our eyes off Jesus, none of that even matters. In fact, if we take our eyes off Jesus as we study this book, we lose the entire hope of this book. I've told this story to some of you before, but I was once teaching through Romans. I was actually teaching, not through it, I was teaching uh, some of our distinctives is in the Reformed faith to a group of youth, and it was a group of high school students, and I was in Romans chapter 9, which is one of those quote-unquote controversial chapters, and some parents got wind that I was going to be teaching these things, and they uh, showed up, which was fantastic. I always loved for them to be there, and it was good that they were there that night. Uh, I welcomed them, and I, of course, wanted them to be there more and more often. Uh, and so I began, like I do all teaching sessions, by just reading the text. And as I began reading through Romans 9, one of the parents out loud interrupted me in the middle of the reading of God's Word and yelled, where is the hope in that? As a communing member of our Presbyterian church there, where is the hope in that? In all of her concern, she missed Jesus right there on the page. She got lost in the doctrine and the theological puzzles and the controversies and she missed Jesus. So we study this book. Let's not miss Jesus. He alone is our hope both in this world and in the next. And that brings us to the second point, his loyal messengers. Look again there at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul calls himself a servant first. Here the original word is more commonly used in that tongue as the word slave. which Some of your translations may actually say that. We normally have this kind of negative connotation concerning the word slave, rightly, especially in our country, in our history. But in this context, what Paul is saying is that he is willing to put himself in subjection like a slave or like a servant to Jesus as his Lord, that he's not counting himself as the author of this book as anything particularly special. And so he makes sure the very first thing he says about himself is a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. And why would he want to do that? Well, the very next thing is he gives us this completely opposite thing of a servant. He says that he is an apostle, which is literally one who is sent In the New Testament, the term apostles used to denote those who were sent by Jesus personally, as in Jesus spoke to them and sent them out. Not spoke to them through his written word, but literally spoke to them. 
term is unfortunately thrown around by many who would call themselves apostles today, and it's just not true. It's, it's not. The office is closed because the apostles' work was to bring the very Word of God to the people of God for all time, and that has been received in full, and so we no longer need this office called apostle. Like we were talking earlier, when Jesus opened the Word to those who were on the road to Emmaus, Paul is opening this same Word to us today, to them, the church then, he was doing the same thing, and to us and to all time, the Word of God is being opened. He had the authority to do so as an apostle. And today we have those words or these words that we can work through together and we should work through together. We don't need any kind of special office or distinction in order to to read and to study and to understand God's Word to us. Paul has given us that in his office so that we can have it and we can use and understand and live by His Word together. You don't have to be a minister of the Gospel even to read and to study and to understand His Word. In this particular book, I have lots of training and lots and lots of experience, but there's no secret handbook to Romans or any other book. We have God's Word in complete and it's available to all believers. And you see it coming to bear here as we study this book of Romans. And I think it's one of the, one of the best in the New Testament in this way. It brings so much of the Old Testament to bear on the gospel. Notice in verse, in verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This ability that Paul, to, the ability that Paul has to bring this word is not only associated with his office, sure it is, but it also has to do with the fact that God has given him a measure of grace in order to do this. And while the office of apostle may no longer be a thing, the grace of God is still very much a thing. We are all evidence of that. The fact that we're all here this morning Hearing the word of the Lord preached, the fact that we're able to gather in worship together, have a place to do so, is the very grace of God in our lives. And so the fact that God is still bestowing His grace upon His people to read and understand and study His word is still very much a thing. So as we study this book, we pray that God would give us His grace that we might rightly divide this truth. And that brings us to the last point, his royal decree. Look with me again at verses 5 and 6. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So why has he received grace and apostleship? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Jesus. And he is sure to include in verse 6 that this is not only for the nations, but this is for this particular people, for those who are in Christ. This should call us back to the psalm that we read together this morning, right? In Psalm 2, David, who was the psalmist, he asked this question. It's kind of a rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage? 
Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and they want to break their bonds. They want to break free of the Lord and have this freedom that is apart from the Lord. And notice the Lord's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Why does he laugh? What's so funny? Because he's already set his king on Zion, on his holy hill. It doesn't really matter what the kings of the earth and the rulers have set themselves up to do. It doesn't matter that they've come together to plot in vain, to, to break the bonds from the Lord, to set themselves free from him, because he has already set a king for all eternity on his hill, and that is Jesus. The plan for Jesus, his king, is that he will make the nations his heritage. You know, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. So for Paul, this task of giving us this gospel, this, this idea that in verse five that to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. It's just seeing Psalm 2 come to fruition. This idea that the nations would be the heritage and the possession of the Lord Jesus. And this shouldn't surprise us any because when Jesus came to earth, when He entered into His ministry, what was His message? It was really plain. If you go to Mark chapter 1, you can see his message. It was really, really plain. It was one sentence. Repent and believe. What was his reason for giving that message? The kingdom of God is at hand. This kingdom that I have been given, the nations who are my heritage, it is at hand. Repent and believe. In Acts 2, you see this at Pentecost. There were thousands that were gathered there for a feast in Jerusalem. They were all over the world. And they would, they were from all over the world and come in and bringing their cultures and every, their distinctives back together. Almost this undoing of Genesis 11 where the, where the Tower of Babel as the nations were spread out and all these languages were cast out as a curse of God. Here they are all back together, come again at the day of Pentecost. And what do they hear? They hear the message of the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And what does Jesus call us to pray? This you should pray. Your kingdom come. It's the message of the gospel that is the vehicle by which His kingdom will come forward today and for all time. The obedience of faith that Paul has been tasked to bring is just that that the nations would come into obedience, that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ. But notice in verse 6, including you who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is also us who already have faith. We have this too. It's not just about seeing the unbelieving nations, the people come to know Jesus, but also for us who are in Christ that we might show forth that faith that we have in obedience to His Word. 
that we might act as if the words of our King are actually true and act upon them in our lives. Christians in Rome were largely an unknown group to Paul and to the apostles of that day. It wasn't like they were writing to people that they knew there in Rome. They had met Christians that had come from the Roman church, and we see that in the book of Acts. But largely the whole church was just kind of unknown. We didn't know. But his instruction isn't any different to them. It's not like these Christians who we don't know, they're, they're going to get this other instruction and everyone else that we do know, they're going to receive this. Not at all. The instruction was the same. The truth of God is eternal. To trust in Christ and then to live a life of obedience in following with that faith. As we go through Romans, we're going to have both the call of the Gospel. The Apostle gives us a very technical teaching on the nature of the Gospel. And again, you could just spend years just teasing it apart and understanding the language and just understanding the depth of everything that is here. And it would take a lifetime. Like I said, if you want to get uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones' commentary set, it's like 14 books on his sermon series through Romans. It's incredible the thoroughness that he, that he, and he, when he finished that sermon, he thought, well, perhaps I've just started to, to crack the surface. And he was actually concerned that he, in his, in the end of his lives, that he didn't do it justice. And we think, wow, that's incredible. So much of that. But we have this other section that is a call to obedience and how we are to treat one another, not only in the church, but also in the world, how we are to treat one another. Jesus said that the world would know that we were His disciples by how we love one another. And the call to do it is strong as we move through this book. And so if you're an unbeliever here, understand that this is a message from the King of Kings. This whole book, in fact, the entirety of the Scriptures is a message from our Lord. And it has a direct bearing on your life. As we read from Psalm 2 this morning in our call to worship, The plot against Jesus is a plot in vain. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has already been set upon His throne. And He will not be relinquishing it any time soon. And so the only thing for you to do is to repent and to believe and to call upon His name and to be saved. If not today, I encourage you to read these opening chapters of the book of Romans. Just read through chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and and so forth and understand this call upon your life and see that Jesus is Lord and that His is the only name by which you can be saved. What about for believers? We again, we have this truth set before us as well. Romans is a perfect treatment of how those who are considered dead in their sins have been made alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then if those who have been called by the name of Jesus, we have a particular way that we ought to live. And Romans does that very well. To neglect the teachings of this book is to neglect the Word of God, which is to neglect God Himself. Devote yourself to the teaching of this book over the next years. It's going to take us the entire year to go through this book together. Settle in and plan to dig deep and your understanding and the depths more and more as we go through this book and pray that God would show you more of who He is and then what He requires of you. Embrace the gospel truth 
for your life. That we've been saved by grace through faith, but in obedience to that faith, we should take this message to the lost world. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful as we read Your Word, as we can see the truth, that we see all the points line up, that Your Word becomes more and more clear as we study it day by day. And so, Lord, we pray that as we study this particular book, that You would give us clarity, that You would give us understanding, that You would show us truth, that You would change us by it, that we would come away from our study, from our reading, believing You more and more so that we might not sin against You and so that we might show the world the light that is in Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me now as we sing our response to God's Word.